welcome to Three at the Back, the Football Analytics Podcast from OptiPro. I'm Ryan Byer and I'll be your host for this episode. So we've taken a bit of a short break since our most recent pod. It's the first one since uh, the World Cup. I'm sure head of OptiPro and regular guest Ben McCrew would have wanted me to point out that he tipped Croatia to have a good tournament, but with Ben away on holiday, I will not be doing that. Anyway, we have two great guests with us today. First up, we have Tom Woolville, data scientist at OptiPro. Welcome, Tom. Cheers, Ryan. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, thank you. It's your first pod in a little while, isn't it? Yeah, sadly, uh, relegated to the bench, but um, hoping to get my starting place back. And alongside Tom, someone I'm really excited about joining us today, we have Nick Cushing, Manchester at Manchester City Women's Side. Nick, thank you very much for coming on. It's great to have you with us. No problem. It's good to be here. And at the time of recording, the season's just about to get underway. We've got the Continental Cup due to kick off at this weekend. How has the uh, pre-season been going? How's the preparation been? Yeah, pre-season's got, it's gone really well. We, we initially had two weeks here in Manchester, then we went two weeks to the US, which for us in the women's game is, is ultimately the place where we want to be because women's football you know, is, is very dominant in America. And then we've had two weeks back now here and ready for the start of the season. Excellent, good stuff. We'll get, uh, we'll get straight into it. So um, I wanted to start by looking at your, your background, set a bit of context and history in terms of your that's inside football and without, how that sort of shaped how you've sort of progressed to this role. Can you tell us a bit about that, please? Um, well, I've been an avid football fan all my life. Um, my, my father has consistently watched football since he was young, and, and I watched football in grounds around the country and on TV. So I, I've always you know, had a real passion for the game. Um, went to university to study sports science and realised really quickly that I didn't want to be a sports scientist. <laughs> Um, and that coaching was something that I was really interested in. Um, did a bit of voluntary coaching at, at a football team called Vauxhall Motors, which used to be a Vauxhall yeah. conference team that unfortunately aren't anymore. Um, and then came voluntary at Manchester City when the training ground was the old training ground at Platt Lane. Um, did a bit of voluntary coaching with the young players, the 5 to 11 year olds pre-academy, um, and started my first full-time role in recruitment, which was as a coach, coaching all of the players that were either on trial or were in being looked at potentially to become signed with the academy or go back to the teams where they came from. Um, so worked there, that was 2007, worked in recruitment and then through the years, because I was always a coach, I was never really a scout, um, evolved into working with the academy boys, 5 to 11, 12 to 16 and then in 20, the back end of 2013 moved across to the women's first team because I'd always expressed the desire to the head coach that I worked under that I wanted to work at the I don't know maybe we call it play to win sort of you know preparing the week to prepare your team to win and um, so I moved across to the women's first team in the in the inaugural year in 2014 and yeah I've been there ever since so really enjoy it and it's um, a job I, I, I take really seriously. Excellent and that that extensive coaching background, I imagine that transfers still now, even as a head coach, you like to be out on the training ground and really, really immersed in it day to day. Yeah, I think I think in my experience of working at, at this level, at first team level, um, I suppose there's two types of managers, head coaches. There's managers that coach and then there's coaches that manage and I, I do hold myself as, a, as primarily a coach. I do a lot of coaching and I want to be out on the training pitch and that management side of the players and the processes and the operation is something that comes with the role but yeah primarily I'm a coach and and I think all of those years coaching on school playgrounds and coaching voluntary and at grassroots level is ultimately what gives you the 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 tools to then go out and work at first team level and adapt to be flexible with what flexible with whatever situation you know you have to face one thing I wanted to pick up on was 
qualifications as well outside the game and whether that's influenced how you coach, how you manage. Now, am I right in saying you've got a qualification in management, leadership, business and accounting? Yeah, yeah. It, was, it wasn't something that I did formally as in university. When I finished university and came into coaching, I realised really quickly to work at the top end, I was going to have to develop myself in a lot of other areas other than just football coaching, technical and tactical. And um, I, I've been really fortunate to work with some really good people here at Manchester City on the football side, but then some really good people that aren't on the football side that work within the business side. And, you know, I was advised very early on in my coaching that if I wanted to work at the, at the, the highest level, the first team level, I was going to have to develop myself in, in, in working with people and managing people and, and developing people, you know, whether that be men or women. So, yeah, I went on a management course and then I went into looking at business and, and accounting and dealing with finances and all those different things. And, yeah, it was something that I really enjoyed and something that the club supported me in. And I did it here at the Manchester College and then at Manchester University. And, yeah, it's still now, you know, in those areas of dealing with conflict and, and managing meetings and dealing with people that aren't football players, I think it's really equipped me in this role that I'm in now. Excellent. And Tom, I suppose that's not a million miles away from from your data science background, obviously, have you found those sort of those different experiences, those different ways of challenges, new problems that affects the way that you look at football? Yeah, definitely. I think to uh, take some of the next step, learning about or learning from other areas. I think we've learned a lot about football through the lens of other sports. So um, some of the models we'll be, we build will take. Um, we'll look at basketball, for example, and, and you know the basketball analytics is quite far ahead. So we use that as a as a good sort of way to mould what we're trying to build and I think learning from other areas and taking ideas from other people is, is really important in, in the work we do. Yeah, I think other sports has been a great learning curve, particularly in terms of um, data and outside in terms of North American sports being that, that step or two ahead that we've been able to learn that way. So moving on, I wanted to look at the um, at your team's playing style, Nick, and and how that's influenced perhaps being part of the wider City Football Group, uh, whether there's a responsibility for all teams to play the same way or whether you've got that, that freedom to for your team to play the way you choose them to. Yeah, I think we're, we're really lucky here at, at the, within the City Football Group and, and in, with myself at Manchester City that you know we have a, we have a methodology here and it, it's, it's a very detailed methodology. It covers not only your, your playing style but the profile of players that fit within that playing style and or, or, you know, the, the different areas around the, the, the game model for us. So, yeah, you know, when I, when I initially moved from the boys' academy to the women's team, you know, for sure one of the main areas of the club supporting me in, in doing it was that I'd previously had eight, eight seasons of developing myself and familiarising myself with the game model and the methodology that we have. I've been really fortunate to work with some exceptional head coaches, whether that be Alex Gibson in the initial days, Scott Sellers, and then Rodolfo Burrell, and then as we went into the women's game now with Jason Wilcox, that you know the the head coaches of the academy have a vast experience of not only the game, but the game model that we we want to play here, and and I think ultimately you know it's really easy to develop a game model and a methodology that that you want teams to play, but ultimately as a coach you have to have a belief in that, and I think one thing that I think we've being really good at and what you can see with our first team now is if you have somebody that really believes in that style of play and, and believes that that's the way that the game should be played not only for the fans that come to watch but because you believe that that's how you win football matches then ultimately 
it's not about all the teams playing the same way because the, the ideology and the, and the way of playing will all be the same. If you look across the, the City Football Group, whether it be our men's first team or our women's first team, our academy boys or our 23 boys or our women's team in Melbourne, the playing style is all the same, but the, the, the little details and the, and the, the, the game moments and, and what you see when you watch the game, they may be a little bit different purely because we have different players and a different opposition and different the environment is different at the time so yeah we definitely work off a, off a methodology and a game model but I think within that I think the, the one thing that defines it is all the coaches believe in it but then we all have our different ways of working but it's all pretty similar and all off the same it's all off the same model Excellent, and that, that model, that methodology, could you could you share a bit about that, what informs that, what goes into that, both from a coaching perspective, from the top down, maybe historical data informs that, maybe it's performances and previous winners, for example? Yeah, I think ultimately the belief is that we want to do everything with the ball, we want to dominate the ball, and, and we believe that that we want our fans to see the, fo- the, the football, that we play beautiful football, you know, we want everything to be with the ball, and whether that be with our goalkeepers and our, and our, and our defenders or, or whether we're in offensive positions with our with our attacking players. You know, we want to make sure that, um, like I say, everything is done with the ball. And, and I think if you if historically, you know, you watch, you know, we've all been inspired greatly by our men's first team last season because even in our game model and our methodology, they've took that to the next level, that dominating the ball and controlling the opponent and making sure that everything you do is with the ball, whether that be offensively or defensively, you can win football games and you can win them in a way that your fans really enjoy watching you. We definitely have, there is a, there is definitely a data side to it. I don't think that drives what we do, but it definitely helps us and it adds to it and it gives us an edge when we're looking at trying to improve areas and when we're looking at reviewing areas. But no, I think ultimately with and without the ball, we want the ball. So you'll see our teams press really high and are really aggressive when we don't have the ball. We don't want teams to control us. But with it, we want to control the opponent and create lots of chances. And I think ultimately the game is about space, isn't it? The team that uses the space the most and restricts the opponent's space ultimately gets control of the game. And I believe control of the game gives you the best chance of winning it. And, and that aligns perfectly with some of the stuff that we've seen from, from the most recent WSL campaign. Isn't that right, Tom? Yeah, so just to add a bit of numbers to what Nick's saying, so Man City women's team last year had the most passes per sequence than any of the teams. So a sequence being a a discrete um, chain of possession that a given side has, so the, the highest number of passes in those sequence, so like they're saying, dominating the ball, um, and also the second highest number of um, recoveries in the final third, so 9.7 per 90, so essentially that high-pressing style that I, I guess is part of your, your methodology, your, your game plan. Two things that I guess measure how uh, what Nick's saying has actually been put into practice over the last season. And it's a case of, I'd imagine it would be ensuring those, those principles are are worked on, they're, they're utilised, they're, they're applied on the field, and that, that will give you the best chance of success within within the team. Yeah, I think ultimately you, you, your methods and your game plans and your model ultimately will give you the best chance of being at the table when the crunch time comes. It doesn't necessarily mean you'll win. There are a yeah. lot of other things, whether that be the players that you have within your team or the moment that you're in the season, the psychological moment you're in, the, how you know how physical and fresh you are in that moment, you know, will decide or dictate whether you win or lose. But having a, a belief and a model that you believe in 
ultimately that you believe will be successful will get you in and around it. And, and I suppose that sort of shows in the sense of in 2015 we we came second, but we went on a really good win as we developed as a team. 2014 we we were developing. 2015 we developed into a team that could get there. 2016 we, we dominated. 2017 we fought with Chelsea. In 2018 we, we we were in and around it, but we didn't win anything. So it's you know it's evolved my way of looking at the game definitely because. I suppose as coaches we are very dominant tactical, you know, the game systems of the game and all of these things really drive our beliefs until you really get in it and then you start to understand that there are a lot of other things, periodizing your training, the psychological state of your team and all of those different things where the opponents are at, what your running's like versus theirs. But, you know, my belief is that you have to have a defined belief in the game because that ultimately will dictate whether you move forwards. I think that's, that's really interesting. Whenever I've sort of been able to hear from head coaches, be that at conferences or in situations like this, there's been an appreciation and an awareness for what can be controlled and what can't be controlled. And, and everyone seems to be quite comfortable with that rather than trying to again, control the uncontrollable. Yeah, I think I say a lot, you know, a lot when you go into the press interviews and people ask you, when they ask you things that you know you can't control, the schedule, like we have this thing in the WSL about schedule. We can't control the schedule. The schedule is what it is. We have to find solutions to being a team that wants to be successful in every competition. We almost, you know, we almost make our own bed, really, in the sense of we go, we, we work hard enough to be successful in Champions League, in FA Cup, in Continental Cup, and in League. So we create our own schedule, really. We have to find the solutions around that, whether it be squad size, rotation, um, all of those different things, to make sure that in every like one thing, I, I, when we talk about playing style, last year I think one of my learnings is that because the schedule was so busy, we didn't have enough pitch time to, to not only review but then train and improve. We basically just played, recovered and then played again. So these are little areas where we're evolving as a team because we're only in our fifth season. Yeah, and that's a, that's a really interesting point. I know a lot of analysts have that, that same, same challenge that with up to two games a week, travel involved, the, the opportunity to implement implement new new concepts or tactical preparation to the game can be can be minimal and it's really having those systems perhaps you'd like them in place early as early as you can so you know what's going to happen next and everything can run as, as smoothly as it can yeah ultimately you know you have to have those systems in place you have to you have to almost plan in advance definitely um, having the having your concepts of how you play helps because you're not chopping and changing things every week, your, your systems and your style of play and your game plans, it, it all, all works off the same concept and you're only changing little things to exploit the opponent or to contain the threats that they may have. Um, but having the systems in place, which is one thing that I think we have here, is we know our working week, so we know when our analysis sessions are, we know how we're going to hit individuals, we know when we're going to hit small groups, we know when we're doing our opposition work, we know when we're doing our training reviews, and you know we know what we're doing and what, not only what we're doing, but we know what we've got, we know we film every training session, we know we have opposition data, we know we have stats, so we, we know how we're going to work and we don't, it's not off the cuff, so it's all about yeah, getting that system and the process in place early, so that when the heat does turn up and the pressure comes and the schedule is very busy, you, you just have to stick to the plan really. Excellent. And and that ties in quite nicely with the next question of sort of what a what the average week looks like during the season for you. Well, we would always do match day plus one. We're always reviewing the previous game, so we're in the players are recovering, and then we'll review the game. Um, we always review the game around our concepts so that we have 
clear direction in how we're in what and how we're reviewing. I think it's really important that you don't when you're reviewing the game, you don't just talk about the game and then have a day off and move on. There has to be learnings from that because otherwise the, that review is, is almost a wasted day. It just becomes a process and not and it doesn't become something that is a, a learning, you know, something we can move forward from. Um, so yeah, we always review the previous game and we'll around our concepts. We have a day off and then we'll always do a tactical day. So we'll make sure that we're preparing for the game and on that day when we prepare for the game we're looking at the opposition we'll always study the opposition because the WSL one is getting so competitive every season each team is improving there's new teams West Ham and United Brighton Leicester Sheffield United these teams have more resource these teams have more integration with their football clubs and the players are improving so we always review the opponent I've said you know, the WSL is super competitive so you have to take every team you know, with respect and make sure you prepare. And then around that tactical, we will always review that. So whether it's 11 v 11 or a small-sided game or some kind of practice that is around game preparation for the game coming up, we'll make sure that we review that so that we're not only reviewing how we played them, but we're almost reviewing how we're going to move forwards. And then just to, we just make sure that, that when we're preparing for the game match day minus one, that there is nothing new. Now, I'm not really a believer in in you turn up on Saturday morning before you play and then you flood the team with all of the information and all of the set pieces and all of the video. I think you've got to be purposeful in everything that you do. And by being purposeful in what you do, the players will then understand how you can continue to be successful. I also think competition isn't really important, so we always do one day that is purely just about competition. You know, I'm a believer that if you make your training harder than the games, then when that pressure comes and when the competition comes, you'll be prepared. Excellent. And you said that you do um, a fair bit of work on, on your opponents and your own performance. Can you tell us a bit about your relationship with, with your analysts and what you look for from them, how you like to receive the information and what that dynamic's like? Yeah, I think ultimately the, the head coach and the analyst have to work really closely because the, the, the video and the stats and the data ultimately doesn't lie really, it is what it is. So when you're watching video of the opponent, that is how they've played or how they've performed. Now, you, what you can't control is the future. You can't, you can't always predict that they're gonna play the same way. And that's where the data and the stats come in because that's over a longer period. So that almost drives you, it shows you more of a trend. Now, I think then you've gotta look at what type of people you have. You know, I'm very aware of the type of person I am and I think that fits with then when you go out to other places and, and you do other courses away, away from football I know I'm not very analytical I'm very feel based and I don't really respond well to the stats and the data but I know the players do and the other staff members do and the, the analysts do so you have to trust your staff and I allow the analyst to work you know my analyst she works very independently um, I'm a real believer that you have to let your staff, ultimately, if, if I don't trust the analyst, I may as well do it all myself. So she will drive a lot of the data to the players that are very analytical and, and that, want, that want the stats and want the data. She, we use a lot of iPads as well because we have a lot of visual players that, that are like myself. So we'll do a lot of individual work and we'll do a lot of group work with iPads out on the pitch and up in the classrooms. And when we get a spare minute, we'll, we'll be always getting the iPads out and showing either video previous or future video of, of 
individuals or teams. But yeah, I, I'm very field based. I'm very video. You know, and I think ultimately with your with your analytics, one thing we have is we know each other very very clearly. So when she clips the game, she knows I want to watch the game fully because that's what, that's I always not the night of the game, but the next day I want to watch the full game. But she ultimately knows that how to work with me. That she'll code up a lot of the concepts and she'll make sure that she has a bank of clips. She almost knows what I'm going to ask for, even though I've watched uh, the, the uh, questions before you've even asked them. Essentially, having yeah, those answers. Yeah, and I think. But we've, it's took us maybe a year and a half to build that in, and I think it's being aware that she knows I fully trust her, and I also know that she wants me to develop her as a person. So let, allowing her to go out to source other analysts and conferences to become a better analyst, but then also improving her game knowledge. And, and, and I think one thing I've had to improve as a head coach is letting people into my mind because I'm, I'm very much a megalomaniac in the sense of I'm in control and I know what session we've got and I know where we're going to go, but nobody else knows. And I've had to really work hard at involving them, the staff and, and the analyst in what's in my head so that they can move, they can work a step ahead of me instead of always being a step behind me, which is maybe where we've been in, in the first two seasons. And, and Tom, is that something, I suppose, from, from the other side of being relatively data-centric and that side, is that... Do those words ring true? Is it something that you've had to look at, look out for in your own work? I guess on a on a personal level, it's more about just uh, being committed to progress and like developing personally and professionally in terms of like being able to have the time to learn new things or implement new new things in the day to day, and and working alongside people who uh, you know, enable me to do things like that definitely rings true. Um, Nick, I guess that's quite interesting around like the analyst relationships. That's something that obviously you're saying has progressed over the years. That is like organic growth versus like, oh, I want to, I want to sort of learn these things and have goals set before. It was kind of just as part of the job you've learned on the job to work better or differently with the analyst. Yeah, I think I think previously in roles maybe that I've been in, the analyst has always just been almost the the, the, the camera person that stands behind the camera and just films it and then. It's handed over to the coach, and the coach decides. Of it. Whereas I, I don't think that works now. I think that you know football is evolving, and, and other sports have, have pushed us to evolve into into understanding that there are many resources out there that can support performance and improve the way that we work to improve performance. Um, so yeah, I've you know I, I'm through the years I've developed my own leadership style and whether it be the sports scientist or the analyst or the psychologist or, or the coaches, I, f I fully support them in, in their area of work because when I was coaching and I had a head coach, I was, I, was, I was really happy that they allowed me to work and allowed me to succeed and fail in areas. And I think that's where learning happens. As a person, when you develop, you need somebody that's going to allow you to be free. And, and ultimately, like my analyst came, she's got a badminton background, she's not got a football background, so... She had a lot of areas of performance, so ideas around improving performance that were completely new to us and have really helped us. But then, at the same time as we've had to develop her understanding of the game model and the methodology, so that we're being functional in the in the areas that we're clipping and the, the video that we're using and the data that we're sourcing. Um, so yeah, I just think that's I think that's a healthy way of working. And my belief is that if you allow people to 
be passionate about what they do. I think ultimately it's about sourcing the right people. If you get the right people, then you don't have to restrict them. Yeah. You can allow them to succeed and fail and develop as people along the way. And then as the head coach and the manager as such, you have to manage people at times. So if think you know, it's not always you know, happy place. At times we have to when when there's when there's not much time, you have to make decisions without all the information that you want, without all the time that you have. So you know, it's just about understanding. One thing I say a lot is, as, as a staff team, we have to have the principles of how we're going to work, and then we can be, if we have princi the principles of how we're going to work, then our processes can be pretty relaxed, because the principle of how we're going to work around always creating a learning environment, always challenging, supporting, and they're just some of the things that we share. Um, that will then drive the work that the analyst does, the work that the strength and conditioning coach does, and the work that the coaches do. And the processes can be a little bit relaxed because football is so random. It changes a lot. Schedules change and players get injured and things will happen. We went today to have a, um, an analysis session on Birmingham City. Um, we turn up at the auditorium and someone's booked it out for seven hours to do interviews. We had to adapt. We had to go into a classroom. We had to use a screen that was a lot smaller, but it worked. And we were, we were flexible enough because we have those principles of how we want to work and, and what has to underpin the staff's work with the players. Perfect, excellent. And that's, that's a really nice place to wrap up for part one. We're gonna take a quick break and then we'll come back and look at the recruitment side of the game. Welcome back to Three at the Back. In this section, we're gonna take a little bit of a closer look at the recruitment side of things. Nick, could you, could you share a bit more about that, that initial process within Manchester City, how you go about identifying players, profiling players, and how that fits into the, to the football, uh, football you want to play in your team? Yeah, I think, I think ultimately, the first, where we start initially is within the game model and the methodology of the football club, there is very defined profiles of players that fit within our style. And, and I think you have to have that. And I think when you look at the most successful teams within the game, those teams understand the concept of the way that you want to play and the players that fit that has to marry. You know, if we look at, in particular, the role of the fullback, that has evolved over years so much. And ultimately, there are different types of fullback now. And we all know what types of fullback Manchester City players are. They have to be very offensive, they have to be very physical. And that works across the whole pitch that. Once you, once you define your profiles, then you can go and start to build your recruitment process. Now, obviously within the City Football Group, because we all share the same methodology, the profiles are all pretty similar, but within the game, there aren't, there aren't this is not like, you know, flavours of sweets where they are just it's yeah. so structured. There is, every player is totally different. Um, so I suppose it's understanding how that fits within the team, within the game, and then within your team and within your league and within your, obviously across the group there are many different things, whether it be structures of leagues, gender, pools of players, every team is different. So yeah, we definitely rely on the football club's recruitment department to drive, initially drive the processes of how and where we highlight players. But within the women's game, the challenge for us initially, because it's where, it's where my job sits, is is the pool of players. There isn't a great pool of players because the women's game is developing. There are very good players, but there isn't a plethora of players within the men's game where we can go across the whole of Europe and the world to source 
the players that fit the profiles that we have. So, and the game has only been professional now for four or five seasons, so you have to take into account the physical ability of the players, the professionalism of the players, the psychology of the players, and all of those things. Um, so, yeah, we, we basically here at the football club have a have a, an all round continuous recruitment process where we're highlighting players and we're we're adding players to the databases so that we know what players fit within our teams. But then the flip side of that is there is also a lot of variables of what clubs they play at, whether they're available, when they're available, and all of those things. So, no, I think ultimately the thing that I would say in recruitment is about succeeding or failing is understanding the profile of players that fit your playing style and not being reactive. I think in, in recruitment, sometimes football teams and football coaches are reactive that a player will become available and they see that as improving their team, but does it improve your all-round game and it might be a better player as in the perception of the player but for me it's about being a little bit more relaxed and long-term and understanding succession planning of where your team is going and we, you mentioned that, that those profiles are so important to everything you do and I think that that sort of shone through in, in this summer signings as well do you ever look at players and maybe they're doing something in a particular team that you think can be transferred to maybe a different role within your own or something they've not had the opportunity to do or some, or occasionally bits you notice that can perhaps be applied in a different way because of the, uh, the football that you play. Yeah, definitely. You know, we, we highlight, Most of our recruitment is... Well, most of the players that we try to recruit are highlighted well in advance and for many reasons, whether it be their attitude and the type of person they are and where we believe that we can progress the players or because of the football they're playing and where we feel that the team can be improved in the short term. Um, so yeah, you know, we knew the players that we wanted to bring in, but at the same time, I, you know, we can be honest that we can be reactive as well. It doesn't always go to plan, and you have to be a little bit more short-termist. And then that's about really understanding your profiles. That um, you might, we might recruit a player that we feel we can really improve, but we're well aware that it's going to take time. And I think that's giving the players the opportunity and. You know, recruitment is all about us as, as the football club. You know, if, if we recruit a player that doesn't fit our team, that's more our problem than the, than the player's problem. And that's why we have to be so organised and so aware of our recruitment because we want to improve the team, we want to make progress every year. And progress looks in two ways. Progress looks short term. We feel we've improved our squad this year and we feel that we are a better team now. But we also feel that we have players and we've recruited players that will become stronger at the back end of the season and in a season's time and in two seasons' time because you know it's not all about just buying players to win now. There's a lot of different arms to recruitment and I think understanding recruitment, you know, I started off in recruitment and although I was just coaching the players, I worked with a lot of really experienced people within the game that, that had either played or coached or just been in recruitment and they taught me a lot about recruitment and a lot about, you know, the short term versus the long term and how you have to look a little bit further at times. I feel we have the team here for the next five years because it's a young team that also has a lot of experience, a lot of games in it, but you know, our, our average age is 24, so that that not only is for this year, but for the foreseeable future. And we've, we've, we've seen similar with, with what some of the work we've been doing in terms of being able to profile players that are sort of beginning of their career, maybe 17, 18, and you can see they're going the trajectory of someone who's 23, 24, and we can get a better understanding of the route they're going to take their career progression 
and we can learn about it that way. Tom, is that something that you've you've seen in some of the work you've done? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, a more relevant example will be um, we looked at obviously Izzy Christensen this summer moved to Lyon, um, and you brought on Carolyn Weir. I guess to start with, would you say that Carolyn would be playing a similar position to where Izzy was last year? That is a uh, like like for like ish. Yeah, and I th- yeah, and I think there was there was a lot of you know, if we look at Caroline Weir, we've predominantly played with um, two right footers. We play four three three with a holding midfielder and two advanced midfielders, and we've predominantly played with two right footers, Izzy Christensen and Jill Scott. And we knew to evolve the team, we would have to buy a left footer because that would give us balance and would evolve the team. So little areas like that. She also possesses a real good set piece delivery, Caroline Weir, so she will evolve the team again. Yeah. She also is a very young player. That's if we if we track her lifetime, she went to she moved to Arsenal as a very young player. So she made a big move that didn't really come off for us. So she stepped down to Bristol, or she, she went to Bristol to play every week. She then went to play for Liverpool. So we know that she's very ambitious. We know that she technically was very good, but we also knew there was a lot of areas that she needed to improve her game, and we feel that we can improve her. So yeah, definitely it was. It was about evolving the team and it was about trying to make that next step into making this team a better team. Yeah. So I guess some, some numbers to add, to add to that, comparing um, Caroline Weir with Izzy Christensen. So they're both involved in the same number of sequences that ended in a shot. So when we're talking about that attacking midfielder position between teams, they, they probably profile quite similarly. Both created the same number of chances. And then the sort of quality of pass they were making, Christensen was slightly higher when we look at um, expected assists, which models how likely passes become assists. Um, one key difference between the two is um, Weir was getting more fun off her recoveries and defensive actions. So maybe is there a, an angle in terms of the defensive side of her game which is more or kind of suited to the style of football you want to play? Yeah, no, I think it was more suited to the style of how we want to evolve the football that we play. Yeah. And looking at all areas of the game, like I say, you know, to me you have to look at every area. There, there was a, a huge need for this team to have set piece delivery and have some kind of ball uh, a better ball into the box but in the open play to have more of an offensive passer and I think Caroline is that she's a very she's a very offensive pass she looks a little bit longer and she's got the technique to get the ball in there and I think you have to consistently look at evolving the team so um, and you've got to be aware that players are always going to come and go and I think succession planning is really key one thing we do here is that we, we track all of our players, whether it be younger players or older players, so that we consistently have a succession plan for if either someone decides to leave or someone's career ends or we lose a player to an injury. You have to always be ready to, to sustain the level of performance that you want. I think that Caroline Weir example is really nice at both the technical level, uh, the off-the-field mentality you spoke about in terms of the ambition, um, the little details about the left-footed side and uh, and the set-piece delivery really brings it together quite nicely. and. And even the point on succession planning, I was going to ask in terms of players coming through as well, the system, ones you've got to be aware of in terms of recruitment as well. If you know you've got someone who's going to be ready in six months, 18 months' time, that that also feeds into how you uh, how you recruit. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, that's the whole part of being not being reactive or understanding when to be reactive and when not to be. So you know, if, if, we, if we look at our team in... 2015 we had um, Izzy Christensen and Jill Scott that were playing as offensive midfielders and we also had Georgia Stanway that was a young player um, and we had Tessel Middag so we had three players that we would say were 
professionals, senior professionals, Izzy Christensen, Jill Scott and Tessel Medan, where Georgia stand with as a young potential player. And we had the opportunity to potentially bring in a number 10 that would play in that position. But then when you're looking at your succession plans and you're trusting what you're doing, if, if, you, if you be reactive, then you block the way for Georgia Stanway and she doesn't become the player she is now because she doesn't have the games. But in the short term, you look very short termist and think, oh, we can win tomorrow because we're going to evolve and bring in. And I think it's about understanding how you want to recruit and how you want to evolve the team. And like I say, at times you can be reactive. This year we brought in a defensive player because we ultimately knew we needed to bring one in because we had an injury, so we have to be reactive. Whereas the, the flip side is with Georgia Stanway, with the Georgia Stanway example, we were a bit more patient and a bit more calmer about it because we wanted to give Georgia Stanway the games. And we, 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 we understand here that younger players is a big strategy of ours. Now you can say that younger players is a strategy of yours and have younger players in your system, but then to me the, the make or break is whether you give them games and you give them the opportunity. And with Georgia Stanway and Kira Walsh here and Abby McManus, you know, we've done that. We've done it with the goalkeeper last year, Ellie Roebuck, because we believe that's the succession plan for our team. And we've pushed Jess Parks up this year as well, that we'll get games because we believe that she is a future Manchester City player. So, yeah, I do think it's about one succession plan and then two, trusting and believing in that when those moments come where you maybe can recruit a player that just comes from nowhere. And we know that football sometimes, and sometimes fairly, very short-term approach and very looks to the next game and and not often perhaps beyond that. Is it is it a challenge to balance the two or is it so that is it that that overall culture within within the club has been embedded so well that you're comfortable with with the long term approach that it's been working so far that because of the way it's been implemented right across the club that it's it's not an issue here? Yeah, I think the recruitment culture is embedded here. We have a, a, a really good recruitment team that works under Brian Marwood and with Gavin Flegg here that works across the, the, the scouting and recruitment of the City Football Group, I think those people help you a lot because what happens is when when you are reactive, the perceptions in football drives a lot, you know, people's opinions of players and people's profiles outside of the game. And what happens is, especially in the women's game, because there's not such a plethora of players, you can be reactive to maybe sign somebody that hasn't played so many games, has had a lot of injuries, hasn't been very successful in their career, but has a very has a bigger profile and has you know, the opinions of the outside world is that these players should be playing for top teams. And I think what happens is with the data and the and the and the an, the analytics and the, and the analysts, what they do is. They almost put your feet back on the ground and give you the actual facts of the situation to say, well, this is the utilisation of the player. These are the amount of games that this player has played. This is what productivity you've got from that player. Now, is this the player for you? Instead of just looking at their profile outside and how much the outside world thinks that they are. And that's not to say that players aren't top players. It's just just brings you back down to earth and gives you the, the real facts of the situation that you can then go away and decide this is a gamble, this is for us, this is a definite, this is one that's not for us. Excellent, I think that's a, a really nice place to wrap up. I appreciate you've got a lot going on, so thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, I did, no problem. Tom, thank you very much. Cool. Cheers, right. And thank you very much for listening.